I think that's, you know, that's the most important thing you can do when you're running for office or really doing anything. At the end of the day, I feel like you didn't leave any anything out there on the field. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series helps us to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank and may lose value. Hi, everyone. I'm Renee Cordes with the Maine Biz Podcast team, speaking today with Ryan Fecto, Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives. Ryan is here today to talk about what shaped his path to politics and to becoming the youngest State House Speaker in the United States, as well as the first openly gay person to serve in that role, which he has held since December 2020. He will also talk about some of the issues important to him, such as affordable housing and why that's also very personal for him. Let's get right to it. Ryan, thank you so much for for taking the time for this. I appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be part of it. Let's uh, talk a little bit about your your background. Tell us a bit about your your family and what it was like growing up in Biddeford. Yeah, so I grew up in Saco and then moved to Biddeford in, in seventh grade. My I was born in Biddeford at the hospital here. My Pepe and my Meme and my dad moved from Quebec in 1964 to live here in, in Biddeford and, and worked in the textile mills, which I have a portrait of behind me here in my home office. I see that. That's Yeah, great. yeah. And they worked in the mills until retirement. My dad worked in the mills until the early 2000s when he saw sort of the writing on the wall that they were, they were pr- probably going to be closed. And he went off to, to work for himself in the, in the construction industry. My mom and my dad divorced when I was young. So I, I was primarily cared for by my mom, seeing my dad on the weekends. My mom was a low wage and still is a, you know, healthcare worker, a low wage healthcare worker for much of her life. Uh, she dropped out of high school after ninth grade, so never obtained a high school diploma. And we you know we were living on very small means. I like, I, I always say like, when you're living on the edge like that, it seems like everything that can go wrong does go wrong. It's like, you never get a chance to like sort of exhale. Um, you're always just constantly in a mode of solving problems and challenges. And that was pretty much, you know, the majority of my childhood experience and being food insecure and those sorts of things. So, but Biddeford is home for me and uh, I've been able to call this home for much of my life. And I'm very lucky that I get to represent my hometown in the legislature. I know you went to a uh, public school as well. So what were you like as a, a young student? So, like I said, I transferred to uh, Biddeford in seventh grade. So I, you know, I was a little bit late to making friends and and having the opportunity to sort of find my way. I was pretty shy and awkward, I would say, and probably the last student that you would expect to get involved in any kind of school activities or organizations. 
And it wasn't until my sophomore year of high school when the gifted and talented teacher came by my biology class and said that there was this opportunity to serve on the school board as a student representative that I, for some reason, felt compelled that I should apply and ultimately ended up on the school board as a student representative, perhaps because the superintendent thought, well, here's a shy kid who's soft-spoken. <laughs> he probably won't, he probably will just, you know, take it all in, soak it up, but won't be causing problems. Well, and, and I would say for my first year on the school board, I think I was relatively quiet. Uh, however, my, my second year, I definitely, I definitely saw some of the flaws and challenges that our school faced and I wanted to solve them. And I, and I started, I started finding my voice. So I was a little bit late to the, to the ball game, but eventually I really found my footing in, in high school. At what point did you sort of assume that leadership role or start developing that voice? It was probably my junior year. We, uh, we were pushing for a renovation to our high school. The school was in a great state of disrepair. I mean, we had everything from ceiling tiles falling on students in the middle of class because they filled up with so much water to water that would spout out from the wall in the, in the basement level of classrooms to the point where there'd be so much water on the floor that classes would have to be, would have to be relocated on, on days where we had heavy rain, especially. And I felt like we needed to see the school renovated. I started organizing my peers at Biddeford High School to make the case to our elected officials on the school board and then on the city council. And then ultimately to the citizens of Biddeford because the council put the renovation bond out to the voters, $34 million bond to renovate Biddeford High School. And we, we did all the work that you'd expect from a, a professional campaign. We were standing outside at high school football games, path flyers with information about why the school needed to be renovated. We spent pretty much every evening after school giving tours to members of the public, uh, many of which had not been in the high school for decades. That was on our, that was like, you know, high school students who could have been out, you know, doing high school student kind of things. We were, we were doing politics. We were, you know, on the front lines of organizing and making sure that we left a, our school in a better state than when we found it. And ultimately the bond passed two to one and the school got renovated, even though I didn't directly benefit. I know that there are students that have come after me that are benefiting from learning in an environment that is what we should expect main students to be learning in versus what, what the experience that I had and my teachers had. And that bond passing, that was basically your first political victory looking back now, right? Yeah, I mean, it really was. I, I remember coming in the, the next day after the election and uh, walking into the gym where students would, would, would hang out before the bell rang to go to class. And I saw the principal, Britton Wolf at the, at the time. And, you know, he sort of just like was glowing and I was glowing and we were like so amped that we had passed this, this huge, this huge political victory and this huge victory for our school. And I just remember like, he like opened his arms and I like gave him a big hug and it was like, yes, we did it. We were successful in, in getting this passed. I, I should say I never won any student, uh, student council election in high school or anything. I ran several times. I never was successful. So my only my only uh, <laughs> success was being was being selected by the superintendent. I didn't I didn't get elected by my peers, but um, I've done a pretty good job of making sure uh, that I connect with voters since then, and and I've been pretty good about winning. So that's been good. So you learn an important lesson, then obviously. <laughs> yeah, so after yeah. high school, you went to uh, Catholic University of America in Washington D.C. Why, why there? Well, I really wanted to go to school in D.C. for the obvious reasons that someone who was ambitious in the realm of politics would want to. 
I applied to a number of schools in DC. I actually never toured uh, Catholic's campus. <laughs> it was only recommended to me by a guidance counselor who was like, if you're applying to schools in DC, you should, you should apply to my alma mater. I, I, she just happened to have had gone to, to Catholic. So I added it to my list. I applied. I was, I was interested in going to a Catholic school. I, I'm Catholic and, and had, a, had an interest in Catholic higher education, which I, I think is really good. I think Catholic institutions attract high quality professors and so forth and, and ultimately landed on Catholic, went there and caused a lot of trouble there as well. Good, good trouble as John Lewis, I think would say, and, ha and had a lot of fun and, and really was super appreciative of the fact that I had a chance to go to a, a school that had a student body that came from from very different perspectives, some that shared my political beliefs, some that were very distant, but also we were friends. And I think that's I think that's a lesson, an experience that I was able to take from my collegiate uh, experience and bring to the state house. Because I obviously work with people in Augusta that don't share the same political beliefs as me, but I can see them for being, you know, a Mainer, for being a human being, for having some shared values. And I think that makes me a better, it's made me a better legislator. And, I, and I'm really grateful that I had the chance to go to Catholic. And you had an interesting double major. You already mentioned a politics, political science, and you also double majored in the theological and, and religious studies. Interesting combination. Yeah. Yeah. I also, had, I also studied theology. I mean, it, Catholic does make it a little easier to, to jump into that category because you're required to take four courses in theology already. So it wasn't a huge leap for me to get the additional uh, courses that were needed for that, but I did study theology. I loved it. I think that was probably another aspect of going to Catholic that I really did enjoy both theology and philosophy. What role does religion play in your life? You already said it was um, important to you to go to a Catholic university. I mean, it's it's very important to me. I think I've, I, I guess I have this this constant sort of battle with the the Catholic Church internally because as a as someone who's gay and obviously seen the, the stances that the church has taken over the years as it relates to the LGBTQ community, it's, it's challenging. But when I, am, when I am in the pew in a Catholic church, it's where I feel I belong. It's, it's sort of important to think of religion not only as a matter of worship, but also a matter of culture. I mean, my Meme and Pepe went to Catholic church. I went with them. It was French mass. I didn't necessarily understand everything that was going on at all times, but it, it has a familiarity that is being Catholic is really an essential part of who I am. And, you know, I feel very, very fortunate to have that perspective in my life and to be able to be at the table. I mean, this is sort of my perspective on pretty much everything, whether it's politics or religion or whatever the case may be. Being at the table is where I'm going to have the most, where I'm going to, where I'll, where I'll be most effective at making change. It would be easy for me to abandon the Catholic church because they don't see, I don't see eye to eye with them on their current position on LGBTQ people, but I think there's change that's, that's possible. The, the church has changed before it is changing. I think Pope Francis has shown a, a degree of hospitality towards LGBTQ people. Uh, I think there's more that's certainly needed, but I want to be at the table because if, if every Catholic who supports and loves someone who's LGBTQ left the church, who would be left? You know, it, it'd just be like sort of your Facebook friend list, like just a sounding board for your same opinions. I don't think that's healthy. I think, I think we can do better. And I think it is healthy to have a church with folks who have different perspectives on, on how to treat each other. You also got the school while you were there at Catholic University to recognize the LGBTQ student group on campus, but that had its hiccups and challenges along the way. So what can you share about that? 
Yeah, so Catholic refused to recognize an LGBTQ student group on campus called CU Allies. I didn't even know the group existed until my sophomore year at Catholic because they were pretty much operating underground. They couldn't meet on campus. They couldn't reserve space. I found out about the group and I wanted to find a way to be a part of it and see how we might make change on campus and get the university to recognize that LGBTQ students existed and that we were here and we were learning on campus and we should feel welcome just like any other student. I, I took over that group rather quickly. <laughs> I met with the leader of, of the group and probably within a couple of weeks became the leader of the group. And I felt like there was an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation about why this group mattered and why it could align itself with the values of the campus and the, in the university. And we did that. We set out on a journey of showing how the teachings did not say that you shouldn't allow student groups on campus to affirm and support LGBTQ students. And many of the church's official teachings on LGBTQ people teach that you should be showing support and love and embracing those individuals and you shouldn't reject them. Like that is one of the, one of the fundamental teachings that the church has released, at least the United States Catholic bishops have released. And so we wanted, we wanted to like sort of show that it was possible for the, for this group to coexist within the structure of Catholic U. Unfortunately, we, you know, we struggled to get the group recognized. It was an uphill battle. Ultimately, they rejected our application, but they did make a significant shift from, from where they were initially. They had an official document that freshmen were then required to sign that was like a, a, a community pledge of sorts. And for the first time since, I think, 2006, when the university removed sexual orientation from its non-discrimination clause, they used the term sexual orientation, which was a huge, a huge victory for us who were for advocating for this group. Now and today in 2022, this group is very much present on campus. They're, they're reserving space on campus. They are able to be at the student org fair. They have made a great deal of progress. They're still not officially recognized, but they are a lot, they're far more present. And, and in part, in part uh, of that experience for me was an experience with an administrator who, who, you know, I, I knew was not on my side on this issue necessarily. We had a very respectful relationship and he one day had a shift in, in tone, basically said, you know, I, I don't understand why you're so obsessed with being gay. It's like you're, it's the only thing you care about. It's your entire identity. And he went on to recommend this book that was, that I, I did not, I did not know what the book was about. It was called Beyond Gay. And so I basically left that meeting very distressed, <laughs> went to the student center, Grabbed my, got on my phone, Google searched the book. And sure enough, it's written by someone who was a, a so-called success story of conversion therapy. And I mean, that was like gut-wrenching, like, you know, such a, you know, I was a very confident student. I was very confident in who I was. I worked on the marriage equality campaign here in Maine. Like I had, I had no qualms about being my true self. Like there was no hesitation. And here I had this trusted adult basically ripped that, that confidence away from me. And it, it really had a huge impact on me. I subsequently experienced and, and struggled with suicidal ideation for the first time ever in my life. Fortunately, I went home that semester at the end uh, of that semester because I decided to study abroad in South Africa the next semester. So I didn't have to be back on campus, which frankly, uh, may have been life-saving. I know I never like sought 
professional support or anything for the the thoughts I were I was having. But I, in in many ways, I I feel like study abroad and being in Cape Town was therapy. It was therapeutic and, a, and an opportunity to escape sort of a traumatic experience that I had. You returned and in your senior year, you ran for political office, Maine House District 11. Why? What motivated that? Well, Maine has term limits, so you have to strike while the iron is hot. And, <laughs> and I knew that my state representative was going to be termed out. She she actually happened to be my my next door neighbor when we, we moved to Biddeford. And so I was fairly familiar with some of the work she did. She brought me to Augusta once. I got, I got to go to a bill siding with then Governor Baldacci. So that was like a, it was like a cool experience and something I never forgot. And I knew that I wanted to be part of the solution to a number of issues impacting uh, my community specifically, but also my generation. I, you know, I was talking to my peers, both close friends, not so close friends, but almost universally, I was hearing from them that they did not see a future in Maine. They were either going to graduate from a Maine college or university and seek uh, a professional opportunity elsewhere. Or they were going to stay where they where they went to school outside of Maine, and I thought that was a real I thought that was a real shame because I had always seen myself coming back to Maine. I feel like there's opportunity here for me at least, and I wanted more young people like me to see that opportunity. But I knew there were real challenges, and I knew that the lawmakers in Augusta uh, were did not necessarily look like me. There were not a lot of young people. The average age was probably pushing 60 years old of, of a lawmaker in Augusta. And I wanted to be at the table to be a part of the conversation about how we make real and lasting change to attract young people back to our state to retain young people. And so I ran and I made that. And you were also campaigning uh, on weekends, like going back and forth, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I announced that I was running the summer before I went back to Catholic. And then I think I even knocked some doors that summer <laughs> and then I came, went back down to Catholic and then my second semester of Catholic starting in January, I came home every weekend, knocked doors in the, in the cold. If I knew the weather was going to be nasty, I would stay down in DC and uh, make phone calls. And I had a primary election in June. I, I defeated my democratic opponent, went on to win the general and I've had the fortune of representing my, my neighbors in Biddeford ever since. Did you expect to win? I mean, you won by pretty strong margin your your first election. I felt fairly confident based on, you know, the work I put into it. But you never know. And, you know, there's this challenge that I was running against a gentleman who served on city council. He had run for mayor. He was a businessman in town. The obvious attacks about my age were were present. He was endorsed by my neighbor, the outgoing state rep, he was endorsed by the, by the mayor of the, of the city. So I had, <laughs> I certainly had some, I had some challenges in that way, but I felt, I felt confident that I made those connections that I worked hard. And I think, I think that's, you know, that's the most important thing you can do when you're running for office or you're really doing anything. At the end of the day, I feel like you didn't leave any, anything out there on the field. And I, I think I put it. <laughs> I've, I put every ounce of energy I had in that, into that election and the voters, the voters rewarded me with, with their support. And I think that, I think that speaks volumes to people in Biddeford, but Maine at large, that they, they can put their trust in someone that may not be the, the typical mold of a lawmaker, someone who was at that time, 21 years old, asking them for their vote. 
Sure. Let's now fast forward to um, 2020. You were the assistant majority leader of the House since 2018. December 2020, uh, your fellow legislators elected you Speaker of the House by a unanimous vote. I think you were meeting at the Augusta Civic Center at the time because it was during COVID. What was that day like for you? Obviously, that moment, swearing in day in general for all lawmakers to be sworn in in the Augusta Civic Center, which you know, fortunately, we were able to have that facility and use that facility for the purpose it served. But to not be in the cha- house chamber with its with its presence and its glory, I mean, it it's a beautiful chamber and it speaks to the moment and the seriousness and the how important the role of serving one's community is. And that and the civic center sort of takes that takes that away. But but all in all the opportunity to represent not only my constituents, but subsequently the people of Maine, the institution of the House of Representatives to take the oath and serve as speaker. Well, I, you know, there's, there's really no way to describe it other than, you know, just an immense honor. I, I am so, so fortunate to, to have been selected by my colleagues and, you know, first my Democratic colleagues who nominated me and then subsequently the the entire house putting their support behind me to say that 20 was it an emotional time for you i mean to get the support of everyone in the room everyone in the chamber yeah you know i think it was it was surreal in the sense that i was constantly thinking to myself in that moment that people like me don't usually end up in places like this like someone who whose family struggled to just like pay rent and put food on the table that had to drive to a JJ Nissen plant to pick up expired food that could not go to the shelf, but was still, you know, still good to eat a kid like that to, to have parent, a dad and and grandparents who, you know, moved here in 1964, not able to speak any English. My, my meme to this day, very, very little English to come here, work in the textile mills, you know, to not have anyone in my family who is at all political, I mean, to, to be in that moment of taking the oath to be sworn in as Speaker of the House, I mean, at 28 years old, the third youngest in state history since 1842, I mean, that's what was running through my mind at that moment. It was the idea that, like, I was able to do this. And, and I did it not because I was relying solely on myself, but my colleagues saw something in me that they wanted, they, they felt confident that I could lead our caucus of Democrats and the entire chamber and the entire institution of the main House of Representatives. That is, that is a moment I will never forget and I will perhaps never understand how, how it is that my journey brought me to that moment. I mean, you know, what variables had to be at play to make that happen? I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe if you take one thing away, it doesn't happen. And that's, I think, the most amazing thing about it all. Certainly a milestone for you and a milestone for Maine. We'll now take a short break and then we'll talk about some of the key issues that have been important for you in as a representative. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities, and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. 
To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. We have an aging population. We have people who are aging out of the workplace. We needed to attract people to the state. I just don't think we ever anticipated that the speed would be this fast-paced. We are back uh, talking to Ryan Fecto, Speaker of the Maine House of Representatives. Ryan was just telling us about the very memorable day he was elected to that role in December 2020. As Speaker of the House with a lot more responsibility, did you suddenly sense a greater weight on your shoulders from that time on? You know, there are immense responsibilities on the shoulders of the Speaker during a normal set of circumstances. You know, then you add on this, this lack of predictability, this, and that sort of culture war that had resulted from the pandemic of mask wearing and vaccines. It's been challenging to find a, you know, find the way to strike the right balance of making sure everyone feels heard. And that my job as speaker is to, is to command the respect of my colleagues on both sides of the aisle. And I want uh, to make sure that I'm a fair arbitrator during the course of debate on the floor, but I'm also fair in just the general operations of the legislature. And, and that is not always, that is not always easy when you have folks who just see things from a very different vantage point. And that was the case in many instances, especially around mask wearing at the state house. We moved to a virtual format for committee work and some people did not necessarily see that as, as the right thing to do. And so you're constantly sort of trying to navigate these, these, these challenges. Ultimately, you know, we're finding our way through. We got our work done in the first session, got a budget passed. You know, we did some really important work for Maine people. We utilized the American rescue plan funds that we had received. And now we're in the second session. We're, we're getting, we're getting towards the end uh, of that session as well. So we're, we're, we're making our way. We're making our way. Now, some of the issues that have been um, important to you as a state lawmaker, going back to 2014, affordable housing, is one of them. To what extent is that, you know, personal for you having grown up in affordable low-income housing yourself? Oh, it's it's hugely personal. I I see the issue of, of affordable housing as one of the biggest issues facing Maine right now. In 2020, Maine was fifth in the nation for domestic migration, people moving from other states to Maine. In 2021, we were first in the nation for domestic migration. You know, we needed, we, we've always talked about needing more people to move here, right? <laughs> and the, the need, the, the, because of our workforce challenges, we have an aging population. We have people who are aging out of the workplace. And so we've needed, we've needed to attract people to the state. I just don't think we ever anticipated that the speed would be this fast paced. And so we have, a, we have a challenge where there is just not enough supply and there is a huge amount of demand for housing. It will only get worse before it gets better because I don't think people are going to stop moving to the state. I think that that trend line seems pretty strong. You know, you could you could maybe say 2020. Well, that was just because the pandemic people were people were moving out of cities. They were concerned about, you know, living in a in a in a, in a metro area. They, they maybe had some connection to me and they wanted to come back. And then 2021, you know, the pandemic had eased up quite a bit in 2021. And to see that trend line continue, not only just continue, but we topped, we topped the domestic migration from, from 2020. So, you know, there, there are challenges that that presents, but there's also opportunity. We need to find a way to build housing as quickly as we can. We were building about 
250 units of, ha- of affordable housing per year over the last 10 years or so. Last year, we finally doubled that number. We reached 500 units, but we need a thousand units of affordable housing per year to keep up with demand. We have a lot of work to do. Uh, so that's a huge challenge. The governor signed into law the single largest investment in housing in state history. It was a bill that I sponsored, but that's, that's not enough. We have more work to do. And we'll be doing that work in this session and hopefully sessions to come. LGBTQ equality has been another priority for you. So you also sponsored a bill to ban conversion therapy in Maine. What did it mean to you when that was signed into law by the governor? That was a huge victory. It's one of the proudest days in my service to the, the people of the state of Maine. I attempted to pass that bill in, my, in a term earlier. And we managed to get it through the House and also through the Republican-controlled Senate, thanks to some really amazing lawmakers who I, I consider friends who were on the other side of the aisle from me. And then it was ultimately vetoed by then-Governor LePage, who became the first governor in, in the country to veto such a bill. And, you know, it was a, it was a letdown because you worked so hard to, you know, get a bill to the finish line. I saw Republican governors in other states, Governor Christie, Governor Sununu in New Hampshire signed the same bans into law in their state. So you think like, we're going to make this happen. And then you, you sort of, you, you take the L, you take the loss. But we came back, Governor Mills was elected. She said on, on the night she was elected, I, 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 I gave her a hug. I said, you know, can we ban conversion therapy? She said, send it to my desk. We send it to her desk. We got her to sign the law. And it's a huge victory, especially for young people to know that in Maine, that they cannot be subjected to a practice that is harmful, that does not change anyone's identity or sexual orientation, but only leads them to either self-harm or, or harmful thoughts. And we need to make sure that no young person is subjected to that in our state and certainly across the country. Maine was the 18th state in the nation to pass such a ban. There are still too many states, the majority, the vast majority of states in this country still allow this practice to occur. And we have more work to do as a nation to ensure it doesn't. Obviously, you still have a lot ahead of you in your um, political life. So we're now going to take a final break and then we'll return with some lessons and takeaways from your time in politics so far. Maine Biz is Maine's business news source in print, online, and in person. We inform, engage, and connect you to the business community throughout Maine. Subscribe to Maine Biz products today at mainbiz.biz. We need young people in politics. We need young people to be at the table. I think for those who don't think they can do it, I, I think they should just do it. If I could give any advice, it's to just take the leap. I have found that everything else works itself out. This has been a most illuminating discussion with Ryan Fecto, Speaker of the Main House and your path into politics. Ryan, you've done so much in your life. Before turning 30, you reached that milestone later this year. What's on your bucket list to accomplish by that approaching milestone? I'm looking forward to finishing my, my, my term as speaker and working with my colleagues to do some really important work that's ahead of us for the remainder of this session. And, and, and then, you know, we'll see what happens, uh, once December arrives of this year, where my term will end, I'll be for the first time since graduating from college, not an elected official. And I'm looking forward to a break. I think I'll take a, a little little time off to sort of recharge and get, it, get, get sort of my feet under me to see 
what comes next. Any uh, thoughts a longer term of going into national politics? Yeah, not not, not certain, not certain. I mean, I, I, I like to say that this is this has been a responsibility that has never felt like a job to me. I, I love doing this work. I love representing my community. I love fighting for the issues that I care about that I think will have the most positive impact on uh, the people that I represent and the people of our state. And I want to find a way to keep doing that work. And I'm not sure what that looks like, but I'm excited to see what does come next for me. I, I've been searching for it to buy, I've been searching to buy my first house, just like everyone else, I think. So that's been, that's been a little challenging. I'll have a little bit more time to do that probably at the end of this year and we'll see, we'll see what happens. You know, I'm really, I'm really, I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity to serve in this, this capacity. And I, and I, you know, I think as we get towards the end, I'll have a flood of emotions and re recollections of all the good times and the bad times. <laughs> they're all and part of the learning experience. They're, they're in there. They're in there as well. Uh, again, like I said, just it's been an honor and I'm looking forward to the opportunity to find the next chance to serve the people of, of Maine and what, whatever that may look like. So. So watch this space, watch this space. And watch one space. final question, yes. <laughs> one final question for any young person today, you know, with the thoughts of going into politics, any advice? We need young people in politics. We need young people to be at the table. I think for those who don't think they can do it, I, I think they should just do it. If I could give any advice, it's to just take the leap. I have found that everything else works itself out. You manage to find that employer that's willing to let you do this crazy thing called the main legislature. <laughs> uh, it all works out. But what's most important is that your voice is at the table, that your perspective is represented, and that there, that there are uh, people who look like you representing other people who look like you. And that's what matters most. And there's an opportunity to make real lasting change. I have seen it from the front row. I have been a part of it. I have seen what you can do in this capacity and it is really awesome. It's really awesome. So I hope more young people will step up to the plate. I, we have seen more young people step up to the plate over the years and I think we'll see more people running for office at, at all levels. And I, you know, not just the main legislature, it's important. School board, city council, you know, getting appointed to a board or a commission, all of these things, are all of these levels of government, they make, they have important roles to play and make important decisions and we need to see everyone take the take the opportunity to to share their perspective and make their contribution so just run just do it just do it this has been a production of mainbiz find out more about this podcast and other mainbiz media products at mainbiz.biz the day that changed everything is sponsored by norway savings bank and main technology institute or mti the Main Biz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the Main Biz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.